Thank you, Max. It's good to be with all of you here today. The few, the proud, the 745 crowd. <clears throat> See what I did there? That just came out, honestly. So we have, we have come in our study of Acts uh, to the end. Next week, we will wrap up the series that we began in January. And we will see that Paul finally makes it to Rome, and he has this great freedom to preach Christ, which was, was not a given. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you'll see that uh, it was a rough voyage. Uh, the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to go first to Jerusalem, then to Rome. Uh, only God and Paul thought it was a good idea to go to Jerusalem, but he did. And uh, along the way, Jesus appeared to him and, and reassured him, yes, you will testify in Rome, and we'll see next week that that's exactly what happened. But the journey was, uh, was with great suffering. Uh, he suffered greatly, Paul suffered greatly, because he preached Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And so Paul had to face angry crowds, false accusations. He was beaten publicly without, without uh, due process. Uh, Paul was imprisoned. He faced interrogations and, and uh, trials. And so Paul suffered as a Christian. He suffered because he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. But today's passage tells us that Paul also suffered <clears throat> the type of things that are common to humanity. As Max read, uh, Paul suffered a violent storm and he suffered this snake bite. And that's not suffering as a Christian. That could have happened to anybody. And the ship, the storm and the shipwreck happened to everybody in that, in, uh, that were on the ship. But in this circumstance, Paul represented Jesus so very, very well. He didn't shake his fist at heaven and say, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? He didn't go stealth and say, this is a time I, I'm, I'm kind of done here, God representing Jesus. This is too much. No, he represented Paul very, very well, very appropriately, very openly. And a couple years later, after Paul had been imprisoned in Rome for a while, he wrote this in Philippians 4. <clears throat> he said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret this is something he had to learn. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so Paul learned through experience how to be a disciple when he had everything and when he had nothing, when, when, he, when he experienced just miraculous manifestations or when he was seemingly languishing in prison. Paul learned this secret. And this principle is at play in today's passage. <clears throat> we don't know if Paul was referring to this, but uh, I have a hunch that this was part of his learning process. And here's the, the principle at play, is that disciples learn to represent Jesus in the midst of life's, life's varied difficulties. <clears throat> if you're a disciple, this is what you do. By definition, you learn you're apprentice to Jesus. You're an intern for the, your entire life. You're an intern. You're following Jesus around. Teach me in this situation how to live my life. Teach me how to represent you when I have abundance and when I have great, great need. And this learning, of course, happens uh, most, 
most acutely or most significantly many times in the midst of life's difficulties and sufferings. It's been said that if you live long enough, you will suffer. If you live long enough, you will suffer. But not everybody who suffers ends up learning to, to represent Christ as a disciple. This is something that we do very intentionally. And so in this life, you will experience suffering that's common to humanity, sickness, disease, and death. You will lose those that are closest to you. You will experience seemingly random accidents that leave you impaired, either temporarily or permanently. You will have relational stress, even trauma in relationships that can be debilitating. You'll experience natural disasters just like everybody else. And the list could go on and on and on. Chances are, right now, you are in the midst of some difficulty, some hardship, some suffering that is common to humanity. And I would invite you, and this, may, this, this topic may hit close to home today, but I would invite you, <clears throat> invite you to wade into this passage with me and see how it's possible to learn to represent Christ in the midst of life's difficulties. As we'll see in the text, these two events we're going to consider, the shipwreck and the snake bite, they're similar in that they are both difficulties, but these two events were different in that God did not intervene when it came to the storm of the raging sea, but he did intervene when Paul was bitten by the snake. And the difference reminds us that God is faithful, but he's not predictable. God is a person. He's not a human, but he is a person. He has a will. He's always consistent with his character, but he's not predictable. And so we don't look to our circumstances and say, based on what I experience here, I'm going to draw conclusions about the character of God. No, we draw conclusions about the character of God based on what we find in Scripture, and then we look to our circumstances to see his character demonstrated and confirmed. And today's passage is very helpful, I think, in that regard. So let's consider first representing Jesus when we're at the mercy of life's difficulties. This is a, this is a famous storm right here, and, and uh, historians tell us that this is one of the most detailed accounts of a storm uh, on, on the sea in the first century. Luke recounted another famous storm in Luke chapter 8. You may remember that Jesus was exhausted, and so he was asleep. The disciples woke him up, and Jesus, what did he do? It says, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. That's what he did in Luke 8. In Acts 27, Jesus left Paul and Luke and all the others on board at the mercy of the raging storm. And so this is the norm. This is the norm in this world. By definition, miracles are the exception. He doesn't always calm the raging sea. And so Christians experience the same types of suffering as everyone else. And sometimes we may just, this, the dominant question on our mind is, why God, if you're all powerful, why didn't you preempt this? Why didn't you spare me from this? And we don't always know the answer, but one answer that is given in today's text 
is that our suffering gives us the opportunity to represent Jesus in ways that we otherwise wouldn't. And that's certainly the case for Paul in Acts 27. It's a long, fascinating account. I hope you have the chance to read it slowly, in detail, if you haven't already. Uh, But I want to mention just three things that Luke emphasizes in this account. First, Luke emphasizes that the voyage from Caesarea to Rome was difficult. And that word is repeated. Let me give you just a sample. In verse 4, Luke says, and so you'll see the first person plural, us, we. So Luke was on this this ship. Verse 4, the winds were against us. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty as the wind did not allow us to go further. Verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. Verse 9, the voyage was now dangerous. Verse 18, we were violently storm-tossed. And so Paul, as Luke is describing how Paul and the other 276 people on this ship were completely at the mercy of nature, what we would call creation. This is my father's world. He created it. It belongs to him. But they were at the mercy of the wind and the waves. It was difficult. Second, Luke Luke emphasizes that Paul found favor with a man named Julius. He was the centurion that was put in charge of the prisoners on this ship. It was his responsibility. He was a military officer in the Roman army, and he was responsible to get these prisoners to, to Rome safely. But uh, he showed this kindness to Paul on one occasion in, uh, when they went to the port city of Sidon that um, Julius allowed Paul to visit friends when they stopped over there. We'll see at the end of the chapter that uh, Julius, again, intervened right at the end. They were going to kill Paul, but he intervened. He showed compassion. And so this, this is a significant feature in this account. And the third thing that Luke emphasizes is how Paul, along the way, gives these four, he has these four times when he speaks. And so he gives practical advice as well as spiritual insight. It's really interesting. Paul gives all this practical advice about sailing on the Mediterranean. We'll mention why he might have been able to do that later. But we, we learn something significant about the sovereignty of God. And what we learn here is that even though Paul was repeatedly assured you are going to make it to Rome and you are going to testify. But Paul didn't think that that allowed him to ignore common sense. Over and over, Paul says, this is not smart. You you should not take this, this course of action. And so, for example, when he heard that the owner of the ship wanted to sail to the island of Crete and spend the winter there, Paul thought that that was an unnecessary risk. And so look at verses 9 through 11. He says, Luke says, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, so it was late in the year and it was a time of year when you should not be sailing on the open sea, Paul advised them saying, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And so Paul just 
gives this advice. Now, why would Paul do that? Well, one historian who has studied the voyages of Paul and his different missionary journeys, he says there are 11 times when Paul was on the sea, and he estimates that he traveled about 3,500 miles on the sea, and so Paul got some wisdom by sailing, okay? So he brings this wisdom to bear, and so he had some wisdom about sailing the Mediterranean, Uh, Verse 11, not surprisingly, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. I mean, Paul is a tent maker anyway, you know, so of course he's going to pay more attention to the guy that owns the ship. Well, look at the, uh, well, let's see. Let me give you a little more, a little more, and then we'll look at a map. We do have a map, don't we? Is that map? That's a beautiful map. At the back of your Bibles, typically, there are these maps that are just marvelous. And so the, the, the centurion, he was persuaded by the captain of the ship, and uh, they forged ahead against Paul's advice. They made it to the island of Crete, that island there in the center, and they made it to this place called the Fair Havens, which is a great name for a place to, for a ship to land. And they were going to go to the very southwest tip of Crete. That's, that was their plan. Uh, they thought that that would be a better place to stay for the winter. But this incredible storm came up and it blew them past Crete. And much of the rest of the chapter takes place on the squiggly line on the way to Malta. And so that's what we're going to see in, in uh, the verses we're going to look at here. And it turns out that this wind is called a nor'easter. It struck down from the land that blew them past Crete into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And the storm was so violent, we learn in, in verse 20, that, uh, uh, that, that all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They threw cargo overboard. They threw their tackle overboard. In the beginning of verse 21, we read that Paul gave them some spiritual perspective. Since they had been without food for a long time, was 14 days, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And so the ship's going to die, but you're not going to die. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God. And so you see how Paul is being transparent. This is what happened, an angel of God. And notice how he, noted, how, he, how he described God. God, he's the one to whom I belong and whom I worship. That's a great way. That's a great way for a believer to describe God. He's the one to whom I belong. He's the one I worship. Verse 24, and he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all, you, all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And so he tells them, trust the promise that the angel has made to me from God. And then he shared this common sense perspective, right? We need to run aground soon. On the 14th day after the storm, of the storm, this was Paul's message to them. Look at verse 33. A day was about to dawn. Paul urged them to take some food, saying, 
Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. So they were saving it, not knowing what would lie ahead. Verse 34, there I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. So the food is going to give them strength. Paul wasn't, wasn't, wasn't hoping that God or maybe praying, but he was, wasn't taking, uh, taking it for granted. Well, God's going to give you this supernatural strength. No, food will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Turns out they were going to need strength because they were going to be swimming to shore. And Paul took the occasion to give thanks. And when we read this, this is not a witnessing technique. It was a testimony, but this was Paul being Paul. He was a disciple, so he gave thanks in all things. And so he gave thanks for the food that they were going to eat. Verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We, Luke says, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. Ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And so it was a, a cargo ship carrying wheat. And Luke tells us that they, uh, the next day they spotted land. And they saw this bay and they tried to run the ship ashore there, but the, the storm was still too strong. Verse 41. But striking a reef, <clears throat> they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan, this is a great plan right here, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. So the soldiers were accountable to get the, the prisoners to Rome, and in their mind it was better that they die than that they escape. But once again, we notice that God didn't do something particularly supernatural to spare Paul's life. Uh, enter the, enters the, 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 the person that enters the picture is Julius, this man that had treated Paul kindly earlier. He had compassion to save Paul and the lives of the other prisoners. Verse 43, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. <clears throat> he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest, those that couldn't swim, the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now we learn in chapter 28 that, that they stayed on this island of Malta for three months before continuing their voyage. And so Paul's experience on the ship uh, exemplify how a disciple of Jesus can represent him when they are at the mercy of life's difficulties. And that's where we find ourselves so often. And again, I don't need to recount it, but, but just think about it. We, we all get sick at different times. Sometimes we even have diseases that affect us till the end of our days. We all have challenges financially and career-wise, just like everybody else. We have car accidents like everybody else. We experience tornadoes and hurricanes and droughts and floods like everybody else. 
And so in one sense, we're, we're just like everybody else in this world. But in another sense, we are very different because God is with us. God indwells us. God sees us through to the other side, to, to, his hev- to our heavenly home. And God teaches us these deep lessons in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulty. And so, these are the lessons that often become the things that we can share with others, both others in our church family and others beyond. In this way, we can represent Jesus and what he's done in our lives. Like someone told me just recently that your test is your testimony. That's pretty clever. Your test is your testimony. And we'll return to this in a few minutes. And so sometimes we're at the mercy of life's difficulties, but, but that's not to imply that God never miraculously intervenes because sometimes he does. And we see that in chapter 28. So let's think about representing Jesus when we are rescued from life's difficulties. And so in contrast to the previous incident when Paul was at the mercy of the storm, in this passage, passage we read that God intervened when he was bitten by this poisonous snake. Again, since, since God is a person, he's not predictable. He always acts consistent with his character, but that doesn't mean that we can predict what God will do in any given circumstance. So again, in verse 28.1, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, and they welcomed us all because it had begun to rain, and it was cold. So they're sitting around this cold this, this, this fire on a cold, rainy um, day or night. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. We wonder what Paul was thinking there. Really, God? Really? <laughs> this? Now? But we aren't told what Paul was thinking. Instead, we're told what the Maltese were thinking. And this is fascinating. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, in my version that's capitalized, it was probably the goddess, justice, it's a feminine noun, justice has not allowed him to live. And so this is an illustration of what we should never ever do when people are hit with unexpected tragedies. Blame them for doing something. You must have done something wrong. And that was the, that was the uh, conclusion they, they jumped to. They, they said, well, this is Paul obviously getting what he deserved. He, he survived the shipwreck, but he must have murdered somebody. That's why God is, the God justice is murdering him. Tremper Longman is an Old Testament scholar, and he, he uh, describes this as retribution theology. And that theology is very simple, that if you sin, you will suffer. Therefore, if you're suffering, it's because you have sinned. If you sin, you suffer. Therefore, if you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. And we know from the book of Proverbs and and other places that, that we do sometimes reap what we have sown. But retribution theology says that every time you're suffering, 
it's because you have sinned. And that's far from what the scripture teaches. And that's the mindset Paul encountered. A snake had bit him, therefore he must have done something horrible. Verse 5, he, however, Paul, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They, the people who thought he was going to die because he had murdered somebody, they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and they saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and they said, he is a god. At least they're being consistent, right? And so if something, you can survive something like a poisonous viper, then you must not even be human. You must be divine. Well, no, Paul was not divine. It turns out that God was rescuing him. There is a God who ha- in heaven who has all power. And sometimes, sometimes independent of our praying, sometimes he rescues us from the natural consequences of life's difficulties. Whereas God didn't intervene and calm the storm, he did intervene this time. Again, God can be unpredictable in this way. If you want another example in Acts, look in Acts 12. Uh, James, the brother of John, he was killed. He was arrested and killed by the sword. Peter was arrested and an angel miraculously uh, freed him in the middle of the night. But notice how this miraculous rescue set Paul up to represent the healing power of Jesus to many. Beginning in verse 8, we read this. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And this sounds just like the Gospels and Jesus' experience. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And no doubt that Paul was speaking the name of Jesus. That's a common way they did it. Be healed in Jesus' name, by Jesus' power. It was this opportunity to preach the Gospel that was validated by these, these miraculous healings. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so Paul was rescued, and, uh, and there are times when we are rescued, and sometimes it's miraculous this way, other times it seems like, well, that was fortunate, but it was actually God who did that. As many of you are aware, we were supposed to fly to Israel on on October the 9th, and the Hamas attacks broke out on October 7th, and many of you have expressed, and many others in the community, man, we're thankful you weren't, you weren't already in Israel, and surely that is God's protection, but there were others who were in Israel. They, they went the week before, and so we don't believe retribution theology. We don't believe that Steve and Brenda somehow had this favor with God that others didn't. They were at the mercy of what was happening over there, we were spared it. And when it happens, thank God for it. And it's given us many opportunities to talk to people inside and outside the church just about the goodness of God. And that's, that's what these, these experiences do. They allow us to represent Jesus if we will. 
You know, there's 15 or 20 of us that are taking a course on Tuesday night. It's, uh, it's being taught by Steve Peterson and, um, and John Schwartz. <clears throat> and it, basically what we're learning is how people all over the world are taught to share Christ. It's just this, this very simple, obvious way. Namely, you just talk to people out of the overflow of what you are experiencing the, experiencing in the Word and experiencing from God. And one of the scriptures that we, we looked at recently was the uh, Shema, which is in Deuteronomy 6, the first word, the Hebrew word Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then we read in Deuteronomy 6, 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So the words to, to dwell deeply within us. Verse 7, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And then here's a phrase, I've read this hundreds of times, but I've never locked in on this phrase. And you shall talk of them when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. And so the idea is in your home, which for you might be your household, it could be your dorm, could be uh, for you, it might be in your life group, your Bible study, somewhere you're, you're soaking in the scriptures and you're talking about it. You talk about it in your house and the things that are on your heart, you keep talking about it when you're out and about. And so if you're a disciple, you're learning. You don't have to make stuff up. No, the things that are on your heart, the things that are deeply impressing you, those are the things that you talk about when you're on the way. You, have these, you make these Shema statements. It's just who you are. And so in the context of today's topic, let's say you're going through some, some deep waters and you're, you're suffering in different ways. And so in your house, you're letting the word be on your heart, dwell in your heart. You're soaking in the scriptures yourself. You're talking about it with your household. You're talking about it with people in your life group, in your family. And so these things... You're conversant with these things. And so you're talking about these things. You're learning deep lessons. You're learning about waiting on God all day long. You're learning about how to, how to trust God when life doesn't seem fair in the least bit. You're learning that God is kind and gracious in the midst of your suffering. You're learning to consider it joy when you encounter various trials. And so you're learning deep lessons in your house, in your, in your household. You're talking about it, and when you're out and about, you continue talking about it. And so somebody asks you, a coworker, a neighbor, uh, somebody in your dorm, they ask you, so how are you doing today? Now you've got a decision. Well, you can say, I'm fine, how are you? Or you could say, well, you know, this has been, this has been just such a tough time in my life but I'm experiencing the goodness of God. I'm, I'm learning that I can have joy even in the midst of my suffering. And some people will shrug and walk away, but others will say, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to hear more about that. And that's how we can represent Christ, just one way. It's one way we can represent Christ in the midst of life's difficulties, when we're at the mercy of life's difficulties or when God has rescued us from life's 
difficulties. And this is something that I've seen over and over in many of your lives over the years. I have seen you represent Christ in this way, in your neighborhoods, in your places of work, in your class, <clears throat> in the classroom, I've seen you represent this uh, when you're out and about. I've heard of people representing Christ in the hospital and in hospice. I've seen you be faithful. And so be encouraged. As a disciple of Jesus, God will teach you things that will allow you to represent him and to share his gospel. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us grace. We thank you that Jesus knows exactly what we go through in this life. He, he sees and he gets us. We thank you, God, that he understands our weaknesses and how hard it is to do what we're talking about today. But we pray for grace. We pray that we might have the faith to believe that we can represent you. And let us recognize the opportunities. God, teach us deep, deep lessons as we suffer, as we go through this life. And give us a voice to share. In Jesus' name, amen. stand together. Out of the depths I cry to you In darkest places I will call Incline your ear to me anew And hear my cry for mercy